the Forgecast. My name's Sam Towns. And I'm Alex Norton. Before we get into today's video, let's take a moment to thank our sponsor. What's <laughs> a video for us? <laughs> you guys at home don't get the video. You have to look at our God social damn. media if you want to see these faces. It has been a really long day. Anyway, sponsor message, go! It's been a long year. But today's Forgecast is brought to you by Robert Weber Abrasives. So the next time you need abrasives or grinder belts for your workshop, give a visit to webbers.net.au to stock up. Now you're going to hear Sam and I yawning a lot <laughs> in this episode. <laughs> this week so far has gone for about eight months um, and we're looking forward to the weekend. Yeah, the, honestly, the image that you can see, our eyes are looking out over the baggage that you would require for an international month-long trip. The bags yeah. under our eyes are freaking huge. Yeah. <laughs> my, but we're, my, we're, we're my doing Monday, it live. My Monday started with me being attacked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and seriously. it's just gone downhill from there. What, so what else just... have you been up to this week after your attack, <laughs> given that we're rolling straight into it? Yeah, well, um, I finally have started uh, or continued making some headway in my slip joint course. Um, I've been getting so many people prodding me about when's it going to be done? When's it going to be done? I had a really like unexpectedly positive response to my friction folder course and it spurred me on and think oh maybe i should do old types of knives so i started doing a slip joint course but it started in like may last year mm. and then life just has been happening since about then <laughs> it's just been yeah the, the last few few months have lasted about 18 years in my head so uh it's been good to finally get a bit more um progression on that and it's funny since starting the course i've probably made like 20 more slip joints and the uh, knife i'm making for the course is just the snappiest walk and talk i've ever done like i've just been sitting there just playing with it because it's so good so <laughs> hopefully it's replicatable for people <laughs> but um yeah, I'm, I'm going to finish this knife out and, um, I don't know, maybe keep it because it's, it's really good. <laughs> um, I finally, and speaking of long overdue things, um, ages ago, about a year ago, I think it was, um, you may remember I did my Puko study where I did th three Pucos. I um, got them to like 90% finished and then I sat them on my mantelpiece inside and then promptly forgot about them for a year. <laughs> uh, yes. I was cleaning the mantelpiece, and I'm like, oh, yeah, Pucos. And um, I gave one to a friend who needed a new hunting knife and had been wanting me to make him one for ages. And I'm like, here's one. <laughs> I mean, a Puko is a lovely small game hunting knife, frankly. It's, a, you know, in terms no, of practicality. Any, any game, yeah. You, it, in terms of practicality, the Puko, you really can't beat it. It's it's a great all-rounder. And I think it's because it mm. came from a group of people who were both farmers and warriors. I yeah. mean, that's the whole scope. <laughs> like, everything in between. Yeah. Um, I, they're, they're not the most beautiful knife in the world, but Pukos are just so goddamn practical. They're really, really nice. 
nice knives to use. So he was over the moon with that. Um, but I had the other two and I quickly finished them up and, um, I thought it'd be a good excuse to, um, put some stock in my new combined website that I've got with my wife, um, and I, so, um, they're up there and finally done after about a year or more of just sitting there. So, um, uh, good to finally have them done. Um, and every, the rest of my time has been working on a new triad of my Raptor folders. Um, one very plain one, one where I thought I'd play with the mill and do a fuller on it, which came out looking cooler than I thought it would. Um, and one with some of that juicy Koi Baker steel. Um, so they're uh, coming along nicely, not as quickly as I'd like. I haven't had been in the best health recently, so I've been working a bit slower and you know uh, other incidents happening <laughs> slowing my yeah. week um but they're, they're they're looking nice they're you know nice snappy liner locks which is what you want and um they should be finished within the next few days and um i am desperately hanging out to finally finish and etch this mokumai steel like i've never this is my first time using it from koi baker it's got yeah. a high layer just straight layer damascus core and the outer jacket is solid Mokimagane. Mm. Like, if that's not spicy, I don't know what is. So I'm, I'm really looking forward. Like, you can't see Jack at the moment because the core, it's just sort of rough ground to like a 240 grip finish, um, mm-hmm. just belt finish. So you can't see any of the Damascus. And the Mokimagane just looks like brass at the moment. Um, yep. So... I cannot wait. I'm, I'm all day. All day tomorrow is hand sanding, and this is like the only time in my life I've ever been excited about doing hand sanding. So <laughs> I'm doing that one first, just to make me, you know, give me the gumption to get out there and do it. Fair enough. Yeah. At least the hand um, sand should go pretty quick, given that you're sanding on brass mostly. Yeah, brass that's right. Yeah, that's right. So um, it, it should. It, it's got no excuse not to get a nice polish on it. But um, my song of the week this week, I've been listening to my 90s playlist again. Um, and one of the, like, <laughs> if, you, if you are too young to remember the, the music of the 90s, I don't know why you're listening to the show, but if you, <laughs> there, was a, there was a real obsession with ska music mm. during the 90s. It made no sense that it was suddenly popular and then just as suddenly not popular. Um, but there was one band that was a bit of a one hit wonder during that. Um, and it was the mighty, mighty Boston's and they did a song called the impression that I get. Um, yeah. most people know it as the knock on wood song, but the, the, the title of the song is the impression that I get. It is a freaking bop. Even really like 30 years on that song <laughs> is just, it is so good. It's and, just, and- it never ages. And despite the fact that it's scar, like yep. it's ska music. That is a real yep. niche thing. <laughs> and mm. yet this song absolutely fucking slays every time it comes on. It's so oh, good. Man. Anyone who's been in a bar at like fucking nine thirty at night has heard this song come on and people drunkenly scream the Just chorus. Belt it out <laughs> because it's the only lyrics they know. <laughs> it's yeah. um it's just got a hook to it that is just wonderful. Um, you instantly recognize it. You just it makes you want to dance. Well, it makes you want to move, and it can it can lift your mood um, no matter how how bad you <laughs> badly you're doing. So uh, it it had to go on the playlist. I do love the trumpet run on. on oh yeah, but it's track. not a scar yeah. scar song without um, 
without trumpets. Yeah, snap a guitar and trumpet. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You got to get that bass. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, how about you, Big Fudge? What have you been up to this week? Oh, you know, <laughs> slowly dying. This and that. Uh, this and that. Yeah, that's true. No, um, I. It's it's been a relatively productive week. Um, I spent a few days making progress on some knives. I. Uh, Finished out three EDC kind of utility hunters drop points. Stone washed. I know how terrible. Uh, <laughs> you're just gonna um, lose everyone's respect, man. You can't. I know. You can't be going and putting out a stone washed blade. <laughs> you're Sam you know, Towns. <laughs> this, this is like the, the thing was. It was actually part of like a plan to to like pull this giant elaborate joke that started back in like two years ago when I started giving you shit for stonewashing everything. I was going to like stonewash a bunch of stuff and then put it all out at once just to like, <laughs> you know, I don't do stonewash and then just come out with it. But then uh, life got in the way and I kind of, it just got away from me. So eventually I just gave up and went, fuck it, I'm just going to sell it either way. Anyway. Um, but yeah, actually those three blades were the three knives that I forged in the repeatability video that I did a while back. Um, forge repeatability. Um, and I also have the, uh, another stonewashed knife that'll be going up soon. Um, that's a little bit more of a, a premium piece cause it's ADC RV2, um, a hand forged and fully tapered and all that kind of stuff. It's really nice. I like it. Um, but yeah, I, I spent all of yesterday stitching the sheaths and I actually ended up finding out that microwaves and leather don't mix very well. Um, because they spot heat the leather and then the leather burns and shrinks and does all mm. kinds of nasty shit. Yeah, microwaves are exactly that, a wave. Yeah. That's why you get hot spots in your food. Yeah, I remember watching the Smarter Every Day video on microwaves and I don't realize I don't re- like I don't understand why I didn't remember that and kind of make note. But yeah, no, normally I heat my my sheaths to uh, wax them because it wax sinks into the pores a little bit better. Um yeah at least that first coat and normally I use a heat gun, but my heat guns in the workshop and I can't access my workshop. So I decided, Hey, I'll just throw it in the microwave for 20 seconds. <laughs> sure, and yeah, one of the sheaths died a horrible, messy death. Um, <laughs> fortunately the other two survived and I managed to make two more, uh, for the other knives. Two of them are already up on my Etsy store and another two to be coming. Um, I've also been making progress on my sleeping dragon dog set hammer. Um, the dragon's mostly cut out now, like the, the background's all been removed, and now I've just got to start shaping the actual dragon itself. Um, it's going to be, a, like, it's not going to be a super high detail dragon, like it's not going to be a super high detail inlay be, or engraving, because it is going on a hammer, and the hammer is going to rust, like wherever it goes, <laughs> like mm-hmm. hopefully it's going to get used. And when it gets used, it is going to rust, and the, a lot of that hyper-realistic stuff is going to disappear instantaneously. So I'm going for more of an, uh, a, uh, a point at a dragon rather than an actual, like, you know, morphologically perfect dragon. Right. Um, but, um, yeah, and it also is going to cut down on the engraving time and therefore cut down on the cost of the hammer because this isn't a commission. This is just a piece that I'm going to be selling off my, my own back. Um, but yeah, I've also been working a lot uh, with my dad. I've, um, started doing handyman work with my dad to pay the bills or pay the rent at least here. 
so that's taken up a little bit of my time and that's why i'm so freaking tired today is because i spent the entire day building roofs so <laughs> so yeah in a couple of months you're gonna see swole sam it's it I'm gonna be jacked <laughs> um i'm already i'm already jacked up i just you know, like, <laughs> um anyway <laughs> Um, yeah, so that's everything. I've got lots of plans for the week coming, but we'll, we'll see if any of those come for, to fruition. Um, my song of the week this week is a song that uh, my dad just happened to have playing on his uh, Spotify playlist when we were working together, which is one that I used to love back when I was a teenager. And it's a cover of a, an older song by Joni Mitchell uh, called Big, Big Yellow Taxi, and it's by mm. Counting Crows. Uh, I particularly love the cover, like nothing against Joni Mitchell. She did a great job, but yeah, the Counting Crows version was the one that I grew up with and it's the one I really love. Um, Yeah, exactly right. (laughs) It is such a bop though. Like honestly, the moment, the moment you hear it, you just kind of like, I have to listen to this. It's amazing. Uh, The tonality is, is great. And I, and it just, yeah, it really tells a story, which is something I love as everyone knows. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> any song that tells a story, I'm normally there. And relevant in today's uh, rampant urbanization. Really is, yeah. It's a it's a protest song as much as anything. Um, although it's also a breakup song, which I find kind of... <laughs> uh, no comment. Anyway, um, moving on. <sighs> Do we have any listener emails? We do have two listener emails. And our first one comes from, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, but uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to pronounce, I'm going to, I'm going to make it fancy. Marc de Georges. De Georges. <laughs> it's probably not pronounced that way, but <laughs> well, it's I don't want to go full, of, full, full Australian. Marc de Georges. Yeah. Hey, you going, Georgie? De George. All right. He says, Hello yet again. I'm glad Sam is back. As usual, you guys are the best and keep it coming. So I made my first Damascus finally. Ooh. 1095 and 15 and 20. Heat treated, ground to 400, 15 minutes in room temperature, diluted ferric chloride, baking soda bath afterwards. I was under the impression the 15 and 20 would be shiny. Seems the 15N20 is actually black with the 1095 gray. Is that correct? Did I miss a step? After the baking soda and I wipe the steel, is the black residue normal? It seems like after I wipe it clean, it's all just gray and a darker gray. I just feel like I'm missing something. I did try again. This time around, I used rubber gloves, cleaned the steel and rubbing alcohol, and etched in room temperature ferric diluted with distilled water. One is to one ratio. About seven minutes in, I used a toothbrush on the steel and left it in the acid for another seven minutes. After that, I used 2,000 grit and sanded the steel. I repeated all that three times. I still wasn't satisfied, so I did all the steps in muriatic acid two more times. It seems I had better results with the muriatic acid. Finally, after that, I coffee-etched it according to your advice in one of your podcasts. I've attached a picture of the final results. The 15N20 looks how I imagine it should, but not the 1095. Seems like I just need to be happy seeing as how this is all a first for me. The only other thing to do, uh, thing I know to do is to attempt to use the 2000 grit again with a hard backing and bring out 
the 15 and 20 shine but since these are curved bracelets i'm hesitant to give that a try any advice or criticism on my process here is welcomed again thank you for your time mark de george well thank you very much mark that was a very thorough question yeah so um i think sam and i are about on the same sort of page with our ways of finishing damascus and understanding of it what's really happening um Firstly, I would say leave it in for a lot longer. Your ratio is very strong. One is to one is, is very, Super very strong. strong. I actually use a much stronger ratio than normal people do. Um, I go really bold with mine, and I have a one is to three. Um, I, go, I, I am the opposite direction. I go one is to eight. Yeah, yeah. It's Most people use about one is to four, one is to five, distilled water to ferric chloride. Um, Sam likes it low and slow. I like it pretty intense. But the thing is, even with me at one is to three, each etch pass that I do will usually be 20, 25 minutes. And I will leave it undisturbed in there for that entire time. Because when you pull it out, yeah, 15 and 20 is just going to look black. Uh, everything's going to look different shades of black basically and if you just immediately wipe off those oxides while it's still wet you're just going to smear off all of it and it's just going to come off as this sort of black sludge leaving behind a, a gray ugly finish what you have to do is sort of rethink how you're imagining what's going on um, and what's going to happen is the higher nickel steel is going to be less touched by the acid and it so still will be eaten. it like, still will be eaten, but it just will be eaten a lot slower because nickel resists ferric chloride or any acid, muriatic, muriatic acid, the same. Um, so that means anything that's not nickel steel, so in your case, 1095, will be eaten away and it will become lower level. It'll, it'll actually descend into the piece because it's, you know, and that's, that's, what, that's why the 1520 ends up looking bright in the final product because you will do an etch, You'll neutralize the etch. You will let your oxides dry. You will sand it with a high grit sandpaper with a hard backing. And what that does is it's only hitting the high spots. And that's mm -hmm. why the nickel steel will look bright. It's because it's the only part that's touched by the sandpaper. The inside, uh, the lower pieces that have been eaten away more because they're low nickel won't get touched by the sandpaper. And so they'll stay dark. We use a coffee etch afterwards because it makes those dark parts get darker. And coffee etches don't really affect high nickel steel. Um, so you, you, it's a good way to control your contrast. But um, some people are obsessed with getting that real black and white finish on Damascus. That's just one look you can go for. Um, another thing that's going to affect it, though, and I did notice in the photo that you sent of your work, um, you have a lot of carbon migration shadow going on mm -hmm. and carbon migration shadow will affect the final coloration of your pieces. You'll notice it uh, in both the light and the dark. It looks different depending on what steel it's going into. Uh, and that will also be affected by the heat treatment. How even is the heat treatment? You can get uh, sort of dull splotchy parts of your etch that no matter what you do with acid or coffee or sanding or anything will always look blotchy because that part of the steel is not hard. Mm -hmm. uh, so harder steel uh, looks differently and it will also polish differently. The harder steel is, the higher polish you'll get, uh, be able to get on it. Like you, you can get, um, you know, fully hardened W2 to a much better mirror finish than you could ever get a piece of mild steel. Yes. 
so lots of different things to think of. For the curved surfaces, um, I've got a couple of suggestions. I know, Sam, you're fanging to add in something there, but I'll just put in my last two cents. Um, there's there's two tricks you can use for curved surfaces. One of them is a, a trick by Clickspring. Hallowed be his name, Lord and Savior <laughs> Clickspring. He has a great video on making sanding sticks, and I highly recommend looking that up. Uh, they make sanding a lot more versatile. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I'll, I'll let you just watch the video to explain that. Just look up Clickspring sanding sticks and you'll find it. Uh, the other thing is actually a trick in the model making community, particularly people who like to make those Japanese Gundam models. Um, there is a tool that they actually have that most people in the knife making community have no idea exists, and it's brilliant. And they're rubberized back sanding pads, which allow you to have a firm backing on a piece of sandpaper that you can curve or hold in the curve of a finger or a palm. Um, and it allows you to very accurately sand odd-shaped things. Um, so really good for odd-shaped Damascus items. But, uh, yeah, that's 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 my two cents. I don't know if, Sam, you've got anything to add? Uh, yeah, no, um, you hit all of the major points. Um, like was said, I tend to use like a, a 1 to 8 ratio in my Damascus uh, ferric solution, mainly because I find that the slower etches provide less grittiness between the layers. Um, because it's not as aggressive, uh, mm. but then my soaks tend to be like 10 minutes and I do take it out and, uh, scrub it down with steel wool for a steel wool b- between etches. Um, and I don't like wash it off with baking soda or anything like that between etches. I just scrub it off in the ferric because, you know, there's no sense in putting neutralizing solution into your ferric all over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, other than that, the lower the layer count your Damascus is, the harder it is to get a decent contrast because the wide sections of 15 and 20 are going to etch like a lot more than they would if they were narrow sections and they're harder to touch off when you're polishing because you're more likely to dip into the, the high carbon, right? Because mm-hmm. like any, any backing you use is going to be slightly moldable and the wider the area that it has to cover, the more likely it is to dip into the other areas. So if, especially mm. if you're using like steel wool or a sunshine cloth, like, um, like Kyle Royer does with a really low layer Damascus, that is just going to wipe off the center layer of the center bit of your dark layers. Um, Alex was in, uh, exactly right with the, um, with the coffee etching. That's not the only way to do things. And you, there are a number of other ways you could try like gun blowing and stuff like that, but that's, another (laughs) whole other step um and while i say that the reason that the muriatic probably worked better is muriatic or hydrochloric acid as we know it here in australia um is a lot less effective than ferric chloride at eating steel and Mm. so therefore basically we're just doing the same thing you would do with a lower concentration of ferric just with the muriatic instead um, because hydrochloric acid eats things a lot. Uh, most of the hydrochloric acid you can buy eats things a lot slower than ferric chloride will steel. I do find um, that uh, muriatic acid leaves a lot grittier finish on the steels that it does eat uh, compared yeah. to ferric chloride. It's um, real. It's a texture thing. It, it may be your thing. It may not. Yeah, I mean, like the only time that I use hydrochloric acid in my shop is if I'm doing like a stainless, stainless. Damascus. Yeah, uh, because it eats stainless really well uh, in comparison to ferric. With ferric, you have to like heat it and all that kind of stuff, and it's a little bit more of a pain in the butt. 
Um, but yeah, so it, it looks great and you're never going to get that perfect, pure black and white finish that you see guys like Kyle and stuff like that get. Um, without lots and lots of practice and lots, lots and lots of, of trial and error. <laughs> because and a Kyle, deep understanding of what's happening. And I mean, like, for instance, Kyle, you know, is the person I come to because he's he's kind of got it down pat, but he will often do the etch four or five times to get it right. Mm. Like, it's, it's not a first shot, you know, first shot win every time, even with Kyle Royer. So uh, keep at it and glad to see you getting into it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm actually looking forward to. Um, I had uh, Andy from is it Arc Metalworks? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, send me a couple of large billets of um, Damascus because he wants to up his game with fin- finishing Damascus properly. Um, cool. And he actually requ- he sent me those billets and requested that my next online course just be finishing Damascus. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, I'm like, he asked me to do it and I'm like, yeah, but then I've got to make Damascus and that's like my most hated thing. And then these billets turned up in the mail. He's like, you got no excuse now. <laughs> Sassy boy. That's the way to make Alex work. It's just drop a pile of Damascus in his lap. And that's it. Yep. <laughs> Always work for me. <laughs> it does. It does. It certainly got me working. I was riding that high for a year. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, hopefully that helps Mark and um, let us know. Give us an update if you try again. Uh, now, next email comes from Micah Ziegler, and he says, hand, satin, finish questions. Uh, he's got two of them. One, how intensely are you looking for scratches between early grits if you follow the Wheeler 30 method? Are you moving your articulated lamp and checking every angle between every grit, or do you spend more time looking for those scratches only in your final heel-to-tip grits? And two, is there a minimal grit you should take a blade to before buffing for a mirror finish? Is there any difference between mirror finishes that were taken to 1,000 grit instead of 400? Micah Ziegler. Thank you very much, Micah. Two very different questions there. The first one... um, you should always be chasing scratches on every grit because if you are trying to get out a 180 grit scratch with 800 grit sandpaper, it's going to take a lot longer than if you do it back when you were doing the 180 grit pass. Yeah. Um, so use your articulated lamp because let me tell you, scratches are sneaky little SOBs and they will hide from sight and you want to check yeah, just- it from every angle. Be as diligent as you possibly can. At the end of the day, like you're saving yourself so much time taking it out with the next grit mm-hmm. rather than trying to chase it with later grits. Especially if you are chasing uh, an end result of a mirror finish, which it sounds like you are. Um, mm-hmm. You really, you cannot miss a single one. Uh, a trick that I use is I don't fully trust my articulating lamp. I use it until I think I can't see any and then I unclip it from the sanding platen and I take it outside, look at it yep. in daylight. Nothing beats daylight. People always forget this. They'll they'll spend hundreds on every type of lamp and light under the sun and argue about which is the best work light to use and everything, but nothing beats daylight. You can't hide anything from daylight. And, I mean, if you're, if you're sanding at night and you really want a good idea, get a really bright flashlight. Yeah. And get it really close, really low, you know, get lots of contrast along the plane. Because, like, one of the things that articulating lamps don't do particularly well is get low down to the blade. 
Yeah. And when you've got light skimming across the surface, it's almost impossible for a, a scratch to hide. So, yeah, I, I normally have a torch sitting nearby. Um, I actually have one on my desk right now. And, yeah, mm-hmm. I will I will blast that with light from every direction to make sure that I'm actually covering my bases. Because remember, there's three ways to find the scratches. There's moving the light. There's moving your head. <laughs> because, trust mm-hmm. me, your head will be able to move and highlight angles that the light will not. Uh, and the third thing is, when you're really searching for them, is un clamp your knife and actually let the the light run up and down it almost yeah. sort of get get a gleam going on play it, with it in like, the, play with it in the light and that'll that if, if there's one in there it'll, you'll see it uh and yeah use daylight if you can and as as a person who has done mirror finish blades invest in a pair of optivisors yes just just a pair of like two power or three power optivisors they're really cheap on ebay They'll they'll serve you for a whole billion other things. Like I use my optivisors almost daily now, especially with my engraving and stuff. Mm. But for looking for scratches, having that extra three power just immediately brings scratches to life that you would never have seen otherwise. Mm -hmm. And as for your second question, the minimal grit you should take the blade to before buffing for a mirror finish is the highest that you are willing to go. (laughs) The highest that you can go. Like whatever grit you can get, Try and find a higher grit. <laughs> I would I would never try and buff off of a 400 um, Hell to no. try and reach a mirror. Like, uh, I, I, I would, if I were in a hurry and rushing and trying to get a, a you know, mirror-ish knife out, I would take it to a 1200 and then buff. 12, if I were really rushing. Yeah, a buffed 1200 in hardened steel it's looks good. satin. It it looks satin. It's yeah, not, it does. It's not mirror. Like it does. It depends on what kind of buffing compounds you're using. Like if you're using multi-stage wheels, going yep, from black that makes to, a difference. Yeah, black to green to white to pink, then you're probably going to get a mirror off of twelve hundred. But if you're going straight to green, the minimum you need is twenty five hundred. Mm-hmm. I right, would, like, if I were actually trying to, you know, really aiming to have a proper mirror, which I wouldn't because I hate mirror finishes. You know, mirror finishes suck so bad. It's just, you, you use the knife once and it's gone. It's screwed up. <laughs> yep. I like making usable knives, but if I were actually doing it for a showpiece or something like that, I would hand sand to 3000 before I started buffing. Yeah. I just, it's just what I do. Like, I mean, even if I were just doing like a mirrored clip on something just for a bit of faceting or something i would take that to 3000 then buff then i would start the buffing process i mean the closest that i get to mirror finishes is my hormone work because i do a a semi-traditional hormone where it's not that super high contrasty stuff i tend to get the ghost hormone yeah Yeah, lustery shine and i'll take that to 3000 grit and then i'll start using diamond paste like mm-hmm. multi-micron diamond paste and yeah. i'll go up to like ten thousand grit equivalent with diamond paste um so yeah just as high as you can go get higher um and here's a trick for all of you out there looking for higher grit sandpaper most companies even like rhino wet and stuff won't sell anything above 2500 go to your auto stores your auto one your super cheap auto they mm-hmm. all sell finishing grits up to 3500 4000 5000 and while um, you're there, get yourself some Autosol, some uh, chrome polish Autosol. That stuff is the mag. bomb. It is the yeah. bomb. Autosol so or Mother's Mag. Amazing. And you'll get it. And if you're anything like me, you'll get it and be like, this tube is going to last me five minutes. This is tiny. No. <laughs> yeah. 
I am still on the same tube from five years ago. <laughs> much much <laughs> like Renaissance so wax. Yeah, yeah. Much like Ren wax, you, you use very little. It's like Marmite. <laughs> yeah. That's it. Yeah. Uh, so, well, yeah. I guess I'll, you use none, but, you know. I, I, I keep on hand some, because I don't, I don't do mirror polishes, but I keep some pink autosol on hand for my Damascus. Because it's a really mm-hmm. great way. You grab some of that and some fine steel wool, and just go to town, and then uh, microfiber cloth over it, and just nom, 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 nom. looks great. Yeah, I mean, the only the only things I'll mirror finish are sometimes like uh, brass fittings and stuff like that. It's really mm-hmm. nice to get contrast on brass with mirror in some spots and not in others. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, and for that you can use brasso. But brasso is really bad for handle materials. It mm-hmm. turns everything black. So auto is really good for that as well. Yeah, and silver anyway, yeah, um, is good for if you're not going necessarily full mirror, but if you just want a bit of a gleam, silver mm. is a nice cheap option and it lasts a long time. Uh, yeah, hopefully that helps, uh, Micah, and uh, thanks for writing in. So what about inspirations of the week, Sam? Who's been inspiring you this week? Well, this, this inspiration is one that I've had before, but it was a very long time ago. Um there was in the early stages of inspiration of the week being introduced to the show actually. And it's one of my, uh, favorite French forgeron. Um, and his name is Gael Fabre. Ah, yep. Uh, Gael Fabre forgeron. Um, and the reason, man, uh, yeah, he's been working on a bronze sword, a bronze age sword. And, um, like he's been working on a number of swords, and one of the ones that's really been in tickling me is, is a Bronze Age sword that he's been doing because he's been doing it all with hand tools. Yeah. Um, but, and like, th- this is this is something that like I've been getting giddy about and Alex has been getting giddy about because mm-hmm. he has produced all of the materials, including the silver and the copper from ore to create a, like basically a turn of the century, a turn of the millennia, mm-hmm thousand ad viking sword and the pattern that he has just, generated oh, oh so God. good it's so good i Très bon. Très bon. i, I fucking hate <laughs> like <laughs> in the in the most in, in the most loving way i hate him with a passion <laughs> um it's so but no beautiful. he's he's been doing some uh, amazing work with like all of his swords are so clean, right? Just, just so nice. And he works in very traditional materials, but like I said, he has produced all of the, the iron and all of the steel, all of the copper and all of the silver from ore to create this sword. And it's just absolutely mind blowing. And it's got a, it's going to have a bone handle, um, a very traditional bone handle. And I just, I, anyway, Hmm. um, but on the other side, he's been practicing with this uh, bronze sword that he actually been f- he forged from bronze rather than casting it, um, which takes a significant amount of skill not to crack and crumble bronze when you forge it, especially traditional bronze. Um, and it's coming together really well, and he's been doing it all with uh, hand files and, and all this kind of stuff, and it's got like 16 different fullers in it. Wow. <laughs> so... Yeah, no, uh, Gail is a, just an amazing smith. And if you didn't follow him back when I used him as an inspiration of the week, uh, you know, many, many years ago now, uh, <laughs> it was like two or three years ago now, um, 
then definitely go and over and check that out, especially the um, the antenna sword build and the amazing Viking sword that he's working on, or it's an Anglo-Saxon, either one. Um, but yes, it is fantastic. Who you been inspired by this week, Alex? Uh, he's not a knife maker <gasps> or a blacksmith. Horror. Good heaven. He actually works in wood, um, sort of. Um, sort of. Which, which, if you metal guys out there are unfamiliar with, it's like a, a long chain polymer um, <laughs> synthetic. No, it's we've we've with the Forgecast competition that we've been running, and everybody knows my love of whimsy, and mm. um, I, I I just I've always loved whimsical things, and whimsy can come in so many different form factors, um, but this guy is actually a former Lego designer. It was actually a professional full time Lego designer. The guys that make the sets. Uh, and come up with new bricks and things like that. Clever, clever people. Um, they only they, they only hire clever people at Lego. It's it's a surprisingly difficult business to get into. Um, but this guy traded in the plastic bricks uh, and has cr- been creating these just wonderfully whimsical little people out of acorns. Acorns. Uh, and twigs and sticks and things and giving them such presence and, and personality and life. I've never seen somebody that makes something out of natural materials that looks so alive. And what he'll do is he will take these characters and pose them um, very, very... Like he's got video clips on his Instagram showing the amount of detail and work he puts into getting the poses just right and swapping out arms and legs and things to make the sense of weight and everything be correct. And he'll have one of these characters sort of holding out something like a a raspberry and he's got a little spike in the hand so he can actually put a real raspberry and he'll stand this character in a place where he knows birds like to visit and he will (laughs) wait with a camera perfectly focused until a bird comes down and takes the berry off this character's hand. And he'll take a photo in that exact moment. Um, Or he'll be, uh, have one of them holding out a basket of nuts and he'll put it right next to a gopher's nest, the entrance to a gopher's (laughs) nest. And then he'll go off and he will wait for sometimes hours for the gopher to come out and reach out and grab one of the nuts. And it looks like these characters are interacting with these animals. And it's just the most wonderfully whimsical thing I've ever seen in my life. I've only recently discovered him and I cannot get enough of his photography uh, and his little creations. And his name is David M. Bird. Um, and it, 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 that's his Instagram handle, all one, all together, no punctuation or anything, just David M. Bird. And it's the, the personality in these creations is f- just fantastical. The, uh, the de- detail and effort he puts into making these things come to life. We should all take a, a page out of his book. It does makes me smile more than anything else I've seen all year. Just it is whimsy in its perfection. And um, yeah, I mean, d- to dedicate yourself so lovingly to something that has no practical purpose whatsoever 
other than mm. to put a smile on people's face and to just to create this moment. And that's all it is. Like he, he finds that moment and he takes a photo of it. And it was a, it was a fraction of a second in time where this perfect thing happened that he spent sometimes weeks setting up. And yeah, it's, it's worth seeing. It's worth following him. Um, just to to see these moments come to life it's just incredible so uh yeah david m bird check him out because uh you you will not be disappointed especially if you like whimsy as much as me i'm i'm looking right now and i'm i'm already in love yeah it's it, it's kind of it's giving me very like snuggle pot and cuddle pie yeah vibes. yeah yeah. Which, uh, those of you who aren't australian might not know who that is but they were mm-hmm. called the gumnut children and they were little kids that wore gum nuts as hats. Uh, mm-hmm. Gum nuts being, you know, eucalyptus nuts. And nothing else. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, later, later, editions had, later editions had them wearing eucalyptus leaves. But anyway. All right. Um, yeah, no, it's just, it, it is absolutely incredible. I love it. Incredibly whimsical, as you said. I love yeah, it. And it's, and, and it's worth watching his video posts as well because you get a sense of just how much... Um, care he puts into setting these up because mm. the, the the final photos are wonderful and they they instantly will put a smile on your face because they're just like that but it's not until you actually see what goes into making them that you really truly appreciate how dedicated this guy is to getting that smile out of you um and that's <laughs> that in this day and age that is a noble goal so it really is yes that's an awesome example of whimsy yeah I'd, yeah i i um, I will say for the blacksmiths among us who want to an idea of what a blacksmith could do for whimsical stuff, Will Stelter and um, another the creator. Hammer. I can't, yeah, I can't remember what, who the other creator was, but they made an anvil hammer. Yeah, they, they literally forged a London pattern anvil and then made a hammer out of it. Um, <laughs> it, it looks, yeah. it looks, it looks amazing. I love it. It's so whimsical because, again, it's it's like encompassing the idea of the blacksmith and the hammer and the anvil, but in a way that is completely useless, but also hilarious. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, there's an idea for you, like of whimsy. Don't copy that idea. Anyone who copies that idea is immediately discluded. <laughs> what the, the anvil hammer? Yeah. Yeah. That's it. The moment you make an anvil hammer, you're done. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I've been seeing some tantalizing glimpses of what people are, uh, coming up with for their, um, their whimsical projects, and I'm, I'm very, I'm very excited to see what people are doing. But uh, with um, emails and, and inspiration out of the way, you know it is time to get into technique of the week. Technique of the week. week. And week. technique of the week is brought to you thanks to Nordic Edge. So whether you're gearing up for an epic knife build, or leatherworking project, or shopping for a new power hammer or fly press be sure to visit nordicedge.com.au because those handsome handsome fellas will sort you out quick smart i just love how easy it is to order from them yeah it really is it's amazing i am i'm always huge, so quick i'm a hugely antisocial person like people don't realize because i do a podcast so people <laughs> yeah. think that i'm social i'm really not i just mm. go to their website i click at the thing it turns up reliable it's just there and- it's, it's great. Always, like it's always here quickly. Like it's never and there's like candy. It's great. It's just it's just damn great. I just it is it is 
blacksmithing retail in its perfection. I just love it. Anyway, gush over. (laughs) (laughs) Technique of the week is creating reducing atmospheres. It's a very, very useful skill to have, and it confuses the ever-loving hell out of a lot of people who are just getting into things. Yeah. What what is a reducing atmosphere, Alex? Well, a reducing atmosphere, (laughs) Sam. Is uh, it's basically? Do you remember your fire triangle from school? <laughs> yep. You know the three things you need. You need fuel. You need heat, and you need oxygen. Yes. Now, how much you need of those three, three things can vary, and it will affect the fire. And a reducing atmosphere is one where the amount of oxygen is low. Now. If you take oxygen out of the fire triangle, it can't burn. So how you usually achieve this in a solid fuel forge is to actually um, basically introduce burning fuel between your air, uh, where the air is coming into your fire, and the workpiece, which basically means the burning is happening um, and sucking up all the oxygen that is potentially coming into the fire and thus by the time the heat of the fire reaches your work it's low in oxygen which means it doesn't oxidize as quickly for creating forge scale Uh, forge scale does all sorts of nasty things like inhibit forge welds and such in a gas forge it's a lot easier to do because you actually have especially if it's a venturi forge or something like that you have a little vent you can close off the oxygen intake down to a minimum and control it very easily. There's no moving around coals and things like that. You literally just reduce the amount of oxygen that comes into the fire. Mm-hmm. So um, why would somebody want to use that with knife making, Sam? I don't know. Why would you? <laughs> so as blacksmiths, we know that steel really likes to oxidize and create stuff mm. called scale, don't we? Good mm-hmm. God, it's everywhere. And we lose a lot of weight when we're doing stuff like forge welding. And it also makes stuff like forge welding quite difficult when the oxygen gets between the layers and starts creating that scale that really doesn't like to stick to anything in between those layers. And so having a reducing atmosphere, as like most of us will have come across the term reducing atmosphere when looking into making Damascus or making forge welds in general. Mm. Because... In most cases, a reducing atmosphere is what you need in order to actually get a decent weld, especially if you're not using flux. Um, and even when using flux, it just helps. Yeah. Because uh, <laughs> yeah. every, every base covered, you know. Just do everything you can to try and maximize chances of success, let's face it. Exactly. The higher the amount of oxygen in the atmosphere, the more likely you are to burn the steel the more likely you are to lose more steel to scale and the more likely you are to fail in forge welding anything because ox scale is built up in between the things you want to forge weld. Uh, And the thicker the layer of that scale, the harder it is for the flux to remove. So, um, you know, if you've got a small amount of of scale coming from natural oxidation that's coming from the preheating, it's not going to be a big deal for the flux. But a really heavy layer of oxidation from a very oxidizing fire is going to completely kill your weld. Um, and like something to be keep in mind is that the oxygen intake isn't just from the venturi or the or the air inlet from your forced air. It's also from the doors. Yeah. Um, the doors are a big place where a lot of oxygen comes into. And if you want a decent reducing atmosphere, you either need a forge with very small doors, comparatively, like a post box forge, which mm. has 
you know, like relatively small doors, or you Preach. need a door, <laughs> or you need a door. You need something to actually cover the opening in the forge, um, and that will hold in a lot of the the flammable gases, and therefore create an atmosphere that is just burning off all of that oxygen, and either turning it into pure carbon or carbon monoxide um, by interacting with the carbon in the um, in the fuel that you're pushing in, whatever that be, propane, diesel, whatever. Um, and the, the hotter you get that atmosphere, the less oxygen there's going to be. Finding out what mix is going to work, like when you come to your fuel gate and your air gate, is going to depend on what your doors look like. If you've got your doors wide open, you know, like three inch by by five inch, you know, like door on the front of your forge, then you're going to need a crap ton of fuel compared to very little air in order to guarantee that the inside of that forge is not getting oxidized. Whereas mm-hmm. if you have that door basically completely bricked up and you've only got an inch square hole in the back for it to flow out, you're going to, you can run incredibly large amounts of oxygen in that. And it'll still be a reducing atmosphere inside because that oxygen is getting immediately combusted with the fuel that's going in because the chamber is completely oxygen free. Um, and that's why, like in the uh, Don Fog uh, heat treating kiln that I have, it only has a two inch by three inch door on Despite a being the size of a barrel, <laughs> the forty four gallon drum, and it is so <laughs> it is so um, like oxygen hungry. Yeah, that I need. I needed to have the burner set back like two inches from the burner hole in order to get enough intake of oxygen, even though the burner itself had air intake, um, because otherwise the, the LPG just wouldn't combust because there wasn't enough oxygen to actually feed it. Mm. Um, and that all comes down to door size and air intake. So again, it will depend on the design of your forge, and the more efficient your forge is, the better. Now, I hear you all shouting at your phones or devices or whatever you're listening to us on and saying, but Sam, but Alex, how do I know where to close my Venturi or or air gate to in order to get a reducing atmosphere? Well, let's go back to the the fire triangle, shall we? (laughs) So a fire needs oxygen to burn. How much oxygen it needs is going to depend on the fire itself, how much fuel is being provided, how hot the temperature you need that fire to be burning at, etc., etc. So as you are closing off your air gate, you will actually notice your fire change. It will get uh, smaller, a little quieter. The color of the flame and the shape of the the actual flame gouts will change. Um, And so... There is a line where if you close the gate any further, the fire is not getting enough oxygen in order to be able to maintain itself. If you go to the other side, it's actually getting more than it needs. Now, a fire that gets more oxygen is going to burn, uh, be able to burn hotter. But if you have your venturi open all the way, the actual pressure of the fuel being shot down the tube is actually creating sort of like a convection current that's sucking oxygen in. And if it sucks in more than it needs, it will burn what it needs to burn. And the rest of it is just literally just spare oxygen being pumped into your forge. (laughs) And like Sam said, the actual process of the burning and everything is sucking oxygen in through the doors as well. Um, because we don't live in a vacuum, we live in a pressurized <laughs> atmosphere, and this is what's going to happen. So you need to try and ride the line 
of only giving the fire as much oxygen as it needs to burn and burn at the temperature you want. And obviously mm. you're trying to get a forge welding temperature. You want it to burn hot. But anything more than that is going to just be introducing, literally just sucking oxygen in. So that's why we close off the air vents, but we don't close them off all the way because if you closed them off all the way, your flame would go out because fire triangle. Yeah. And I mean, in practical terms, when you're looking at your forge, a lot of it comes down to the look of the flame, right? Mm -hmm. Dragon's breath. If you're over-oxidizing your fire, then your flame will be a very, very short very very active like it'll be fluttering lots and you know burning really hard and the noise will be really high but the flame will be as i said relatively short because there's not a lot of fuel and a lot of oxygen so it's burning off really fast inside there if you've got a like a a very fuel rich environment then you're going to have licking flames it's going to be very slow think of a campfire those kinds of flames the licking out of the forge rather than actually burning out of the forge a reducing, for, uh, a reducing fire is closer to the uh, fuel-rich than it is to the oxygen-rich, obviously. Mm. You still want it to be roaring. You still want those flames to be basically pointing straight away from the forge. But you want them to be a, a nice deep orange or a bright yellow rather than those really white-hot flames that you see from some forges. Yeah. Um, because that white-hot is just overburned oxygen. It's, it's just too much oxygen, not enough fuel. And so you want the, the flames coming out of the forge to look like a blowtorch, almost. Yeah. Um, relatively long, not, you know, not seven meters long, but relatively long and relatively straight, not licking up into the ceiling, but not shooting around like it's, you know, a, a, a fire hose that's been let go. <laughs> and you don't, you, you don't want to forget that you want to get your, your, all of your refractory up to temperature before you even attempt to have a reducing flame. Yes, you can't uh, get see, a reducing a lot of, flame. A lot, of, a lot of people will fire up their forge and then go straight to a reducing atmosphere and, and call it good and start using it. You've got to get all of your refractory up to full temperature. Before forge welding, I'll normally preheat my forge for about 45 minutes to an hour. Yeah, yeah. Normally I'll be forging other little things in the meantime, but that forge needs to be at full temperature before I start worrying about forge welding Damascus. It's usually the plan. You start your forge up and you use it to, you know, warm yourself up, maybe get a couple of small projects out that don't necessarily, you know, stuff with quarter inch round and that that you could, you know, Mm -hmm. just mess around with and maybe prep some stock or straighten out some scrap that you've got, maybe some railway tires or something like that that you want to get into bar form, you know, use that time wisely. Uh, treat some chisels or something. <laughs> yeah, that sort of thing. Uh, but yeah, you're going to be looking at 45 minutes to an hour uh, for a normal size hobby forge before you are ready to really do some forge welding. Unless you've got like forced air burners and ribbon burners and things like yeah, that, well. then that's they're very different. Some people are just spoiled with their toys. <laughs> Um, And I will say the the important thing to remember about a reducing atmosphere is the reducing atmosphere only happens around the outside of the blue cone in the forge burner, Mm. right? If you've got a forge burner that pushes, like, that burns directly down onto the floor of your forge, directly under that and in the direct corona around that blue flame is going to be an oxidizing environment no matter what. Uh-huh. And so if you're making Damascus and you're setting your billet directly under that blue flame, you're going to be over-oxidizing your billet no matter what you do. This is why Sam and I love Postbox Forges so much. Because exactly. your Indirect work heat. never touches the flame. Yeah. Yeah. Indirect Beautiful. heat. 
Mm. And so in my in my forge, for instance, uh, in my uh, nine kilo bottle forge, uh, I have mine at a very steep, well, my burner at a steep angle over the roof of the mm. forge to create that convection current. But it also means that the left hand side of my forge where the burner isn't like on the side where the burner is pointing away from it, that area never tu- is never touched by the flame. And so therefore it's a permanent reducing atmosphere as opposed to being in the flame on the other side. Yeah. Yeah, and you've got a cool side. <laughs> That's it, cool side, which is very side. versatile. Yeah, it's, it's a versatile thing to have. Um, cool side will still get your stuff up to temperature, but it'll be slower mm-hmm. uh, and more, more usually more evenly as well. It doesn't hot. It's good for heat treating too. Mm, yeah. So hopefully that uh, hopefully that helps explain it. Now our topic of the week this week is one that I've actually had on my list to talk about for a while because it's a misunderstanding I see happen a lot in a lot of the beginner circles, and that is the difference between shock and compression. Mm-hmm. Um, it's why there are presses and there are power hammers, and they are two very different tools because one does shock and one does compression. Can yes. you guess which? <laughs> <laughs> I would hope. Sorry, I've, I've been binging this which. old Tony videos. <laughs> Man, seriously, um, this this yeah, episode I mean, has been a mess. <laughs> <laughs> We're both very tired. Yes, <laughs> and a little bit delirious. We would apologize, but you all know what you were in for when you pressed play. <laughs> yeah, and also everybody knows I don't give a fuck anyway. Yeah, this is pretty true. <laughs> but Too no, they shit. They're both very useful uh, things to be able to have uh, in a workshop and, and to be able to do, but they both have very different uses. So um, I'll get into the actual what's the physicality of what's happening between the two, and then Sam can tell you why they're useful in different scenarios. So shock is when something is hit. When you actually strike a piece of steel, whether it's with a hammer or a power hammer or a sledgehammer or a top tool or anything like that you're basically uh, creating a little explosion of energy at the surface of that steel and that is sending shock waves from that point down into the steel that you are hitting so the amount of deformation that's going to happen to that object is going to be larger at the surface and get lesser and lesser as it goes through the steel and this can be seen very clearly in something like straight layer Damascus. If you were to use uh, a completely hand forge, a billet of straight layer Damascus, you would find that the outermost layers are more compressed than the core. Uh, if you are only using a hammer to do it, um, it's a bit like the Doppler effect. So it starts out the, the energy at the, at the surface is very intense and then it very quickly drops off towards the core. The core is still undergoing shock, but a hand hammer can only send that shock wave a certain distance into the steel. How far it goes comes down to how big the hammer is, how fast you are swinging it, how much strength you've got behind you, uh, how hot the steel is, etc. all these different factors um, and, and more factors. Um, the other side of the coin is compression. Now, compression is not based in shock at all it's literally a big old squish and this is what you get from something like a press um even um fast moving presses like uh, fly presses operate on compression not shock and because of uh it's compression not shock it's not a shock wave going through the work it's literally a crushing force um so 
because of that, on our theoretical straight layer billet, you would see a more or less even distribution of that compression throughout the billet. Um, it would still be more so on the outer layers. It'd be more compression than the inner, but that's more to do with the way steel molecules move against each other and less about the actual um, force. But if you are trying to get that even pass-through of the deformation, compression is where it's at, and you can't achieve it through shock. Uh, and that's why presses and power hammers are two very different tools. But uh, I'll let Sam expand further. <laughs> no, that pretty much covers it. And any of you who are familiar with blacksmithing in general will already see how these two things react differently in the work that we do. Uh, in a practical sense, forging with a press is really good for large stock, um, especially, you know, like your 40 mil plus stock and stuff like that, drawing out Damascus and that kind of thing. Because you can basically, uh, the way the steel works is that it cools from the outside inwards. And especially when in contact with other materials, you'll lose heat really quickly. So in the case of a forge press, you may have dyes, flat dyes or something like that. Those dyes will suck heat out of your your billet mm -hmm. or your whatever you're working on. And the core will st stay hot. So as you squish it, the core will move and the outside won't. Much unlike with shock, where it's the opposite way around. Um which is very useful when drawing out uh, large stock into smaller stock and stuff like that because you get full compression of the material, which means you get a nice even draw out of length rather than drawing out the outside down to the inside. The disadvantage of using compression over shock is the, uh, the amount of contact that it has with the press dies during that operation. Uh, anyone who's tried to like draw out tong reins or anything like that on a hydraulic press will know that it takes multiple heats because the dies draw out so much heat so quickly. Mm -hmm. Whereas with a power hammer, you can do it in a single heat because the in the contact is incidental. It is literally just a bang and it's gone. Yeah. The other the other thing thing that of course blacksmithing works on is we all know that as you hit steel, it gets hotter. Mm -hmm. Right. That shock causes kinetic energy to be lost inside the steel in the form of heat, right? And so therefore you can heat up a piece of like small stock steel from dead cold to red hot just Hence by hitting the a old hammer. Um, blacksmith <laughs> trick of lighting their forge with a piece of steel and a hammer. Exactly, yeah. The, the Japanese did it for centuries. Mm. Um, and that, you know, that is useful when using something like a power hammer because that shock creates kinetic energy, which can then continue the heat so even though you may not be doing the 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 actual material moving, you know, like you might not be, you know, moving uh, an inch full depth pass every time, you will be doing more for longer because of that impact. Yeah. And obviously the, it depends on the size of the, the power hammer and stuff like that. If you've got a 500 oh, yeah. weight massy air hammer or something like that, then a 40 mil billet of steel is going to look like a pancake after a single hit. But, you know... <laughs> also um, that um that's why a lot of the more you know blacksmiths of means <laughs> tend to chase those big power hammers and it's not because they're working on giant things but they're uh, they want to work on a machine that you know you have you have control over the power of those hits as well um yeah, and so hammers. i mean some of those big hammers the shock wave that they send through the steel is happening both on the top of it where the hammer's striking but also on the anvil side as well and that shock is so big that it does compress the core of the steel mm -hmm. as well 
Um, it, I mean, a hand hammer will only put it in a certain percentage, but a big old you know, 500 weight <laughs> hammer, boom, yep. it'll do it. So, I mean, they're versatile tools if you have the means to have something that big. Exactly. Um, and, and But there are pros and cons to both sides. So, you know, to put it in context, I'd say like 25 ton press and a 25 pound little giant mechanical hammer, right, are, are relatively equivalent in terms of like uh, price and, you know, size and all that kind of stuff and would be normally what a beginner would have in relative terms. They might have an air hammer that's a bit heavier than a 25 pound little giant, but you get what I'm you get what I'm mm. aiming at. In that sense, those two machines would still be necessary for one another because the 25-pound little giant isn't going to draw out a bar of Damascus very well or set welds very well. Because the other thing with setting Damascus welds is that compression works a billion times better than shock mm-hmm. does. Oh, much, yeah. much for the reason that, Jack, uh, that Alex was saying about that shock wave. The shock wave is traveling from the surface down through the material and then back up, but it's weakening as it goes through. It's also causing those pieces, those separate individual pieces, to bounce against one another. And if they're not mm-hmm. completely liquid at the surface and therefore meshing really well, then all they're going to do is bounce off one another, <laughs> and you're going to end up yeah, like a wet Oreo without no without a weld. Whereas with compression, you're literally just squeezing those things together and pushing them to to weld. You know, you're absolutely forcing them to weld. And ever since I've started welding with a, a hydraulic press, I haven't had D-lamps, so... Yeah, it makes it so much easier. It's crazy <laughs> it's good. One of those things. But the thing is, is that when I get down to like 10 mil thick um, on my press for a Damascus billet, the press basically becomes useless. Mm-hmm. Uh, unless I'm using super narrow drawing dies or something like that, where the uh, contact is much reduced... In which case, I'm threatening cutting the billet in half if I accidentally <laughs> go too energetic. Then basically, yeah, the, the press dies remove so much heat so quickly that it just does not draw out. And this is where a power hammer would become real handy for actually making uh, the stock draw out a little faster and provide a finished planished surface. Um, if you watch people like Salem Straub, who forges like his mosaics and stuff, with his big old um, mechanical hammer, the Baudry, and he'll planish that thing at like a cold, like a deep red heat and have it almost machine clean, ready to go Mm. on the surface grinder. Whereas my Damascus is lumpy and crappy because once it gets down to that 10 mil thickness, the flat dies don't really flatten anything. They just straighten things out, but they don't actually Uh flatten out any of the ridges. I have to do that by hand. (laughs) That's why I was so keen to chase down a fly press because it's um, a fly press is kind of like halfway between a press and a power hammer um, mm. in, a, in a strange way. It's not quite one and it's not quite the other. Uh, most hydraulic presses um, they have an on and an off and mm. uh, you, can, you can feather using that on and off with a good control and a foot pedal and things like that. Um, but it does put strain on the motor to do it excessively. A fly press, it's, it's about the amount of effort that you put in um, that dictates how hard it hits. Uh, a bit like um, some people who are very talented with using um, uh, power hammers, I've seen them be able to push in, a close a matchbox under yeah. the power hammer. Um, they've had so much control over it. It's beautiful. Uh, actually, some of the Nordic Edge power hammers have been doing similar demonstrations of just how much mm-hmm. control you have. I really like the look of them. Um, but yeah, uh, 
the, the reason that we bring this up is because a lot of the discussions that we see are, you know, are you a press guy or are you a power hammer guy? Or if you could pick one, <laughs> what would you have and things like that? But they're very different tools and they do very different things and they should be treated as such. You should aim to have both. If you, I mean, really, a power hammer is, is, a, is a luxury item unless you are working in an industrial setting. But it's mm-hmm. one of those things that once you had that in your workflow and used it uh, regularly and got that control, that, that ability to control, you can do incredibly detailed work with a power hammer. And it looks like this big, violent, fast-moving tool, but it's, it's actually an incredibly versatile tool, just like a press. If you're doing a lot of Damascus, a press, I would say, is non-optional. If you're planning on making Damascus a regular part of your repertoire, or some sort of press, or axes, or yeah, know, anything yeah. that involves working big, big bits of steel, yeah, is it's just it's one of those things that you should just aim to try and have, even if it is a fly press. A fly press is a great tool because it doesn't use any power at all. Yeah, um, nice like, quick interchangeable dies. It's the, they're a good thing. The planishing and stuff like that can be done with a flatter and a good striker. Yes. Um, the, the majority of the work can be done under a press. And like I've always said, if I could choose one, I would choose the press. Like if I had to choose one, because most of the stuff that I can do with a power hammer, unless I'm getting a stupidly large power hammer, like, you know, one of those 500 weight masses or a couple hundred weight, um, whatever I, you need that power in order to actually compare to a press, mm. right? Like you need a stupidly large power hammer in order to compare to a 25 ton press. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to working big stock, you can't work under a 50 or a 25 pound little giant or something like that. You can't work the same kind of stock you would work under a 25 ton press. It just yeah. won't happen. Yeah. Um, and so therefore, unless you've got a facility that is capable of handling a very large power hammer and you have the five figures that you need to buy one, um, a 25 ton press that costs you two grand is going to be the best option. <laughs> but then if you're doing a lot of drawing out like tong work or something like that, power hammer might be better for you because when it comes yeah. to drawing out power hammers are even a small power hammer, like a little 25 kilo will make a huge difference. Massive oh man, difference. I, I would kill, like I, I love little giants. It should be obvious, but I would yeah. kill for a little 25 pound little giant. Yep. Um, for drawing out tongue reins and stuff like that, drawing out thin stock, because mm-hmm. mechanical power hammers have the advantage of speed. If you've ever seen a, a 25-pound little giant run at full speed, it's like... <laughs> you could just pull material out. It looks out. like it wants to rattle itself apart. <laughs> yeah. You can pull material out really easy with that kind of thing. Um, you know, the, the giant air hammers and stuff like that are great, but for me, I, do, I don't do a lot of work that would require it. I used um, a 25 ton press to draw out my rapier billet from a piece of truck coil spring mm-hmm. and it took about 30 heats. Yeah. Whereas if I had done that under even a small power hammer, it'd be one or two heats. Yeah, easy. It, it's easy. an entirely different experience. Oh yeah. So they are they are very different tools and they really should be understood as to why they're very different tools. Yeah. And that's why a lot of the guys that I know over in the States and even here in Australia have started building their own tire hammers. They've all yeah. got their own little, you know, like uh, reconditioned log splitter press. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they realized that they need a power hammer style hammer to um, actually get the work that they need done done. So, you know, it, it is important that you have both if you want to get into this kind of create, creation. 
But unfortunately, yeah. some of us don't have the option of using a power hammer. Uh, I, no. Living, living in suburbia, as I do, my neighbors would kill me if I invested in a power hammer. Um, uh. And so, yeah, like a lot of us don't have that option, whereas a, power, a hydraulic press or especially a fly press, fly presses are basically silent. Yeah. Um, whereas That's hydraulic presses tend to whine a little bit with the electric motor. Or you you've know, got a if you've got a log splitter one, sometimes they're petrol driven, yeah. And um, yeah. that's what I've been running off of, and it gets all the exhaust fumes and the sound and everything, and having to keep stopping to refuel it because they don't run for that long, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I don't have the option of a power hammer because I've got no power in my forge. Yeah. Uh, my na- I have no neighbors, so I wouldn't they wouldn't care. But um, yeah, mm-hmm. the, you add a fly press, and all of a sudden, silent runs on just human strength and uh yeah brilliant just hard to move yes (laughs) and like the other thing of course is that a fly press you're normally going to max out at about like eight tons Mm -hmm. um from a fly press and unless you're jason ellard unless you're jason ellard in which case you're swinging off your your 25 tons (laughs) (laughs) i don't know how he moves some of the billets that he moves under his fly press like i've seen him move like a six kilo billet under that thing and his is a yeah. number six, like or a number seven. Uh-huh. It's a seven like ton that. press. Yeah, it's <laughs> I. It's crazy, crazy, crazy. What a I mean, I've I've got a little number four. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, it's tiny, and I wouldn't. I would hesitate to try and use that for for Damascus drawing out unless the billet was like you know twenty five grams. I am banging to try mine out. I've got to make the dies for it. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing you you get, like put some weight behind yours. It's going to be fun. I actually I have just using like no dies, just the RAM um, against. I, I put some um, just like the the rounding die from the the hydraulic press in the yep. bottom, and I just used the RAM on top, and it crushed twenty mil thick steel like it was a Coke can. Mm-hmm. I just cannot wait to use this with two dies in it, like yep. the way it was intended. Oh, drawing dies. Um, yeah, mine's nice. actually almost identical to the ones that Nordic Edge is selling. Nice. Yeah, I don't have the wheel top. I've got the, yep. the two arms, but the actual form factor of it, um, they're Norton clones, basically. Like Heaps yep. of companies were putting out Norton clones, and um, it's all the same thing. It's a good design. Like, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Absolutely. Um, even and- even my little four-ton, um, when I put the press in, because mine is set up basically just to do my maker's mark, Mm-hmm. When I do my maker's mark with the four ton press, it basically hits as hard as I do with an eight pound sledgehammer. Mm-hmm. Um, like a, a single swing on that thing to put my innate maker's mark in it, puts it in as deep as it would if I swung full blooded with an eight um, eight pound sledge. And do you even have it bolted down? Yeah, yeah, I got it bolted down. Oh, you do? Okay. Cool. Yeah, no, I'd, like, I, I couldn't. It's a fairly small press. Like the, the fly press weighs like 100 kilos. So if I was to put my shoulder into it, I'd just pull the whole thing down on top of me. <laughs> yeah. Mine would be like maybe 320, 350 kilos. And mm-hmm. um, every hit I did on that steel with no dies in there was mm-hmm. rotating the whole thing about 15 degrees. <laughs> yeah. So you really, it's now, you really need it's to have now very down. heavily. It's Well, I've got a dirt floor in my forge, but I mm-hmm. made custom-made um, some forge stakes that are like a foot long, and I just drove them into the ground around this thing, yeah. so it doesn't, it doesn't move anymore. <laughs> it, it needs a lot of securing because they do rock about and try and spin on you. So, Yeah. 
So you want a heavy one. You want a good one. I think the the Nordic Edge ones are six tons as well. I hadn't even sixes. realized that Nordic Edge was selling them, to be honest, and now I'm kind yeah. of upset. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they're number sixes as well. I want to, like, now I want to trade my little one up for a bigger one. <laughs> I actually really like the fact that they've got the wheel on top, like Black Bear Forge's yeah. one, because... Yeah. The, the spinning balls of doom. <laughs> I'm just waiting to clock myself, ring my yeah. bells with that thing. But the wheel, you can't hit yourself with. Yeah, mine, mine's got a little, um, mine's got a little just a right angled arm and the other one's got a ball on it. Like the, you know, right. it's only got one ball. Um, <laughs> and the, the arm is incredibly it short. Off. And that's why I kept it because the arm is incredibly short. So it keeps the, the swing really low. Which means I don't mm-hmm. put as much effort in, obviously, because the longer the lever, the more force you put in. But in my size of shop, it made sense to have a very small swing on my on the arm so that I could mm-hmm. actually fit it in my shop. Well, um, the effort yeah. that it took, like mine took proper like industrial equipment to get mine into my workshop. I'm not sure how mm-hmm. you would get a number six into your shop. I, I don't even want to think about it, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> I'd probably have to take the roof off and like get a crane to drop it in for me or something. I had to use a, a telehandler to, to get mm-hmm. mine in. And um, even then, it barely fit. Like we were... We had literally came down to like an inch of space on either side of the telehandler to, to get it there. And we had mm. to walk it the rest of the way. It took two of us walking this thing bolted to its table. Um, yeah, just praying that we didn't drop it over and have a Will's Delta moment. <laughs> oh, God. I that still screams, feel bad about that. That scream it, still lives in my head. It haunts me. You know, it's just I felt so bad for the guy. Oh. That's all right. He's got another one now. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, jeez, nobody deserves that. That was no, shit. That was, that was so terrible. Bad. Terrible uh, moment. I'm not the most empathetic person in the world, but I could have wept. For, oh, seriously, for, like for him, just well, oh. I I have seen literal like tragedies, like tidal waves and stuff that I was less yeah. affected by. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> You see it on the news and you're like, oh, that's sad. And then you see Will Stelter scream as he watches his motory fall to the ground. You're like, oh my God, (laughs) my heart hurts. I know. I wanted to like message him and be like, you okay, man? (laughs) Just want to go out there and give him a hug. It's like, it's okay. It's It's all right, man. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's it's kind of your fault. But it's... Uh, anyway, enough ragging on Will. But uh, <sighs> anyway, guys and girls, I hope you're all having fun working on your whimsical projects. If yes. you haven't heard yet, if you've been sleeping on the, the competition button, or maybe you haven't been listening all the way to the end of the show and you've been cutting out halfway and missing important things, uh, we've got a competition running and it's going all the way until the end of April. And you've got teams of two, at least two. And we want equal contributions from everybody in the team. Freedom of design, but it must be something whimsical because the world needs more whimsy right now. So Mm. think silly but beautiful inventions like Uri Tuchman would make or perhaps a kinetic sculpture or perhaps something with a clockwork mechanism whose sole purpose it is to make the viewer smile. So this competition is pure form, not function. You will be judged solely on whimsy. 
and the only stipulation is that it must be a collaborative effort between at least two people and you have until the end of april prizes are to be announced we're going to yes. wait till we get a bit closer to the end but they're going to be good so hope you're having fun with that it looks like you're having fun i'm i'm excited mostly by some of the partnerships because yeah. we have seen the work of certain people before and then certain people team up with other certain people and then we get excited. I'm still waiting for someone to try and rope Uri into it. <laughs> yeah, I would love somebody to actually get Uri on their team. But Although, you I'm know, tem- Catman Forge is to- still not telling us who her I'm partner is. I'm tempted to do it myself, but I can't win. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know if, because Kyle Royer said he and his dad might have a go. I'm, I'm, I'd still mm. like to poke him and see whether or not he's gonna gonna give it a go because he liked the idea of it Mm. it's all right he'll message us because he listens to the show he'll just be like i'm listening that's right hopefully he has time like that guy's that guy's busier than me and that's saying something mate yeah he's he's running yeah running ragged yeah but uh still producing that juicy juicy deliciousness yes and all his awesome classes yes now, um, if you guys want to email in a question, uh, you can either slide into our DMs on Facebook and Instagram where we go by the Forgecast, or you can email them to ask.forgecast at gmail.com. And we'll try and answer it on the show. Yeah. But uh, if people are looking for the Fudgery Gar, where do they go? You can find me on Instagram, Etsy, Redbubble, Patreon twitch occasionally i've been doing some uh, singing streams on instagram it's been fun um and also i'll be back to youtube this week because i'm doing my yearly birthday knife Ooh. it is my birthday week uh coming up it'll be my birthday just before the next episode so um yeah i'll be back on youtube so find me there at samtown's bladesmith uh you can also find me under the kitchen sink not in the kitchen sink today under it sometimes I'm really peering through the plug hole <laughs> that's it uh ghost dog style anyway <laughs> and where can they find you alex i go by valhalla ironworks and you can find me on facebook and instagram youtube patreon and at my new website nissa-valhalla.com yeah. and uh yeah thanks for listening guys bit of an educational if sleepy episode um, we look forward to seeing you again next week. Catch you later. Bye.